uh, way to get started. You knew you were not in Kentucky. No, <laughs> no, and, and uh, that, that flag I'd seen under uh, different circumstances some time ago. I mean, obviously, uh, you had not been to Hanoi before, and so that uh, right away was um, a new experience rather than a uh, rekindled memory. What sorts of things um, struck you uh, as surprising uh, upon your initial arrival uh, in Hanoi uh, in late April? Well, two things. Uh, the beauty of it, I, I had not been to Hanoi. I hadn't been to Saigon, too, for that matter, or Ho Chi Minh City. And I, I was taken by the uh, amount of construction taking place and getting to the central part of uh, the central district of, of Hanoi, the number of lakes and parks uh, that were, were downtown, uh, as well as uh, some very, uh, very... Uh, upscale hotels, um, the um, people um, aren't very many cars, but there are a whole lot of motorbikes, and they're, they, they, they're, they're just like packs of them that uh, transcend the streets, and um, I'm thinking that, that uh, the traffic regulations were something more of a, of a suggestion than, than actual uh, law, and uh, I, was, I was warned by a number of people that when you start across the street, don't look either way. Just walk in a very steady fashion, and they'll miss you. They they don't they won't hit pedestrians. It's too much trouble to, to hit a pedestrian. So, uh, but if you stop, then all bets are off. They're, they're not used to people stopping in the middle of the street. So I, I got used to that fairly quickly. And, and uh, uh, upon uh, getting there, probably the most surprising thing, though, Sam, was the the genuine warmth and cordiality of um, the, the people from Hanoi. I had been kind of uh, hinted at that don't be surprised to have the North Vietnamese or the, those in Hanoi versus those from the former South Vietnam, and now it's all the, the uh, Socialist uh, Republic of Vietnam, of course, uh, to be a little more standoffish, uh, a little stiffer, uh, and they came from some um, Vietnamese as well. So it was kind of a, a warning, don't just don't have your feelings hurt if, if they're more formal with you, for instance. Well, I found none of that uh, at all. Within the first hour and a half of, of uh, wandering around uh, Hanoi, I had probably some of the, the best experiences I had in the, in, in the whole trip in meeting um, especially individuals my age or roughly my age, and I'm 61, uh, that I may have encountered under very right. different circumstances some right. time ago. And, uh, and these people were tremendously um, uh, just as cordial and congenial as could be. Um, I found a little island out in the middle of Huan Kiam Lake, uh, and it was a, a pagoda and a temple, Buddhist temple. And you, you, you pay 3,000 dong, or 12 cents, to get over to the island, and, and it was uh, very peaceful. It was beautiful. It was very beautifully landscaped with, with incense, and, of course, the, uh, the vestiges of it are about 1,000 years, so uh, it has its own serenity around it. And I was the only um, Westerner on the, on the island, came and I, I found a very shady spot and it was just, just beautiful looking out on the lake and, and so forth with the, the incense burning and I, I started looking through my notes uh, for the lecture. This was on a Wednesday and the lecture was going to be on Friday. And I started going over some notes that I had in a, a little briefcase and then, then the guidebook. Well, uh, I was naturally a curiosity and, and I noticed people looking over and finally one gentleman came over and, and uh, um, just bowed his head and, and kind of uh, sat next to me. Just after a few minutes, uh, got up, shook my hand, and walked away. 
then another gentleman came over and in French asked if I was an American and had I been in the military and what years. And, and when he found out it was 1968-69 and that I was a Marine, um, and that I was, uh, I mentioned a couple of places, uh, Kantian and Quezon and Dong Ha, um, and he apparently was around those places as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he brought his grandkids over, and I got to shake their hands, and they gave me a little salute and, and sat next to me for a few minutes, and then it was just a steady stream of people. And after that point, I said, you know what, no more apprehension, no more anxiety about being here. I'm just going to have myself a good time. And I would look at and look in the eye as many people as I could on my walks and wherever I went and nod my head, say hello, and and, and, uh, um, and 100% of the time they were returned. So that now was probably the most surprising thing. You did have a, uh, a chance to uh, swing by the uh, Hanoi Hilton. I did. I did, yeah. In fact, matter of fact, the, the two Hanoi Hiltons, one, the Hanoi Opera Hilton, where I stayed, which was uh, certainly a four, four-star hotel, very lovely, and also uh, I did get to the, uh, the the famous Hanoi Hilton or the prison that, that uh, goes back to 1896. The French had, had constructed it, and it was a huge prison, uh, several blocks long, um, and it was used to uh, incarcerate Vietnamese uh, nationalists and uh, those freedom fighters, uh, as they call themselves. And uh, i got to tell you, it was very very primitive. Uh, they, they kept uh, only about an eighth of the museum currently exists, uh, or the prison exists as a museum. The rest has been uh, torn down and made into a very modern office buildings, gleaming chrome and glass office buildings, and I think there's a condo and a hotel there as well. But the front part, that's the museum, uh, is not oriented more toward the Vietnam War, or as they refer to it, the American War, but as uh, it's oriented toward um, the guillotine that existed there when the French um, imprisoned the Vietnamese all the way up until 1954, uh, and some of the, the primitive torture-like uh, chambers that existed there. But, but yeah, I did, did tour that. John McCain was there, and it's noted. They have some exhibits there from uh, from uh, the, uh, I, I guess there were, what, 700 POWs there? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and they, they uh, so they had some exhibits, and certainly they were um, probably would receive some some uh, dispute for the folks that that enjoyed their their hospitality. But um, uh, they were very uh, they were more neutral than I thought they were going to be. Well, winners of wars get to write the history. That's so. right. You own, you, if you hold the property, you get to write the deed. Yep. Right. Right. <laughs> We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. Members of Congress are taking a closer look at the hedge fund industry as House and Senate committees this week discussed possible regulations and tax proposals aimed at the private equity market. The Senate Finance Committee held a hearing on the issue of carried interest by hedge fund managers, interest that is a percentage of the fund's earnings. This interest is usually 15 to 25 percent once specified benchmarks are met and is treated as capital gains under current tax rules. The hearing focused on whether this income should be taxed as regular personal income. Despite legislation that would impose tax on carried interest, members of the committee said they were reluctant to tax all fund managers' profits as ordinary income because of concerns about the effect it might have on capital formation. Senator Charles Schumer of New York and other members were concerned that such tax proposals 
would stifle creativity and entrepreneurship. The House Financial Services Committee also held a hearing looking at the potential risks that hedge funds pose to the economy. The committee members signaled that they were not inclined to move legislation that would further regulate hedge funds, even while conceding that the funds could pose a systemic risk to the economy. Committee Chairman Barney Frank said that the panel's hearing was more for educating members as well as probing the regulatory structure of hedge funds, which engage in riskier strategies such as short selling and derivatives. While worried about further regulation, members of the committee expressed concern about pension funds investing in hedge funds to generate higher profits. Congress is increasingly interested in the $1.4 trillion industry as fund assets have grown by more than 400% since 1999. At the same time, lawmakers have been disturbed by last year's collapse of Amaranth Advisors, which lost $6 billion in the natural gas trading market, and Bear Stearns being forced last month to pledge up to $3.2 billion to bail out two of its hedge funds that invested heavily in the subprime mortgage market. This has been John Hartkin of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. How about as you um, traveled uh, beyond uh, Hanoi and and along the uh, the now uh, more modern highways and and other places and outlying um, areas um, approaching the, what was then the border? Um, obviously, you had a lot of uh, revelations in seeing uh, locations um, that looked uh, you know different uh, than. Ago, um, but some that that didn't change all that much. Apparently, how did you how did you react or feel when you saw those uh, images? Uh, oh my, that brought yeah. back memories. Oh, it, it, it truly did. Um, after five days in Hanoi, I carved out five days to be in a central part of the country, um, now, which what used to be northern North Vietnam, or I Corps as I knew it, and uh, right along the demilitarized zone, um, where I spent the 13 months primarily in and around Da Nang, but also up along Highway 9 that was a, uh, uh, an east-to-west access highway that roughly paralleled the DMZ. And along it were, were Dong Ha and Camp Carroll and the Rock Pile and Vandergriff Combat Base, or the landing zone stud all the way over to Khe Sanh. And I'd been to those places, and the, the Highway 9, when I, when I re, uh, was there, was about a lane or lane and a half of dirt road that would be mined almost every night and had elephant grass that grew up to the side of it and and you'd constantly have people rolling grenades at at your jeep and so forth. So um, when we, uh, I flew into um, Wei and Phu Bai um, and Wei was another place I'd been to right after the Tet Offensive in 1968. Uh, It has been restored somewhat, still a lot that that yet to be done, but certainly wasn't the shambles that I, I saw it in uh, April of 68. It uh, was surprising in that there are no vestiges of, of U.S. units or facilities left in the, the country, with the exception of two air bases, the one at Da Nang and the one down at Tan Sidhu in Saigon. Uh, everything else has not only been torn down, it's been built over, constructed over with uh, sometimes uh, major highways. Uh, this highway uh, that I, I recall as being a, a lane and a half dirt road constantly mined 
was now uh, a four-lane in some spots and two-lane, very modern, uh, not a pothole anywhere to be seen, um, uh, road, and it had a lot of uh, development alongside the road. It's, it's not, not very, uh, I guess it's about maybe 46 miles or so from Dong Ha over to where Quezon was, somewhere around there, another 15 or 20 to get to the Laotian border. And it used to take hours, literally hours, to go from, from Dong Ha to Camp Carroll, for instance, or a little bit beyond that to the rock pile. And now you're there in, in 15 minutes, in 20 minutes. That was, one, that, that was a shocker. Um, couldn't see anything that I, I recognized in, in a way of any sort of uh, um, building or construction, although the landscape uh, certainly, in my mind, I could recall the, the hills, the, the places where operations were run, and uh, certainly the, the rock pile stood out by itself, and you can recognize that. Um, getting over to Quezon, where, where a siege had taken place I, uh, in early 1968, uh, it, this has been turned into a coffee plantation with only a very small quarter uh, taken and made into a museum, an A-frame, it looked like a Swiss chalet museum. And um, this was, they hadn't quite expunged all the propaganda from the uh, sites in that, that particular museum. So that was a little bit rougher than some of the others. Uh, but I, I got the tour of Quezon in um, some of the places that I had been and with its clay, red clay, and, and uh, it had rained very hard the night before. And, and even though the, the U.S. had, had bulldozed uh, everything after it, it um, evacuated Quezon in 1968, uh, and the, the Vietnamese probably did the same thing, um, you, you could still find bits and pieces of, of uh, bunkers and sand uh, sandbags. So I, I tore off a, a piece of the uh, of the sandbag, uh, and uh, I, I ultimately put uh, uh, put it in a little baggie. And I've, I've got it sitting here over on my desk. Uh, and, um, just as a reminder, but brought some red clay back and, and stuff too. But uh, right on the DMZ, there, there really was nothing that that, I, that, that even remotely. Uh, uh, triggered anything. Now, down in Da Nang, um, Da Nang is greatly um, built up. And again, uh, the infrastructure, the road network, for instance, was used to to basically obliterate where U.S. bases were. Um, I, I was at two places, primarily in Da Nang, one at 3rd um, Marine Amphibious Force Headquarters, which was right on the, the Huang River there in, in, in Da Nang. And I Clear as I could find it, um, they built a bridge right over where the third map headquarters was. Uh, now the, the second place was uh, uh, right on the beach, uh, China Beach, and uh, naturally that base camp for Fifth Comp Battalion was gone completely. But uh, they had built a five-star uh, resort, the Fiorama Resort, right over where our base camp was, and that was kind of a shocker. But, uh, I brought some dog-eared Polaroid pictures and uh, with me. One holding a, a surfboard up, and then looking at the uh, um, in the background, uh, Monkey Mountain. Well, I, I was able to find almost where the mountains would would fit right into the picture. So, found a find, found a spot that it was. But uh, Da Nang, uh, the, the the refugee areas uh, that, that used to be known as Dog Patch are now uh, has been made into a sports complex with an ultra modern uh, coliseum and a track. Um, and also a huge water park, and I get they're, they're building even more to it. So in the southern part of Da Nang, right where the bridge was. So, anyway, that it 
anything. Um, I mean, there's, there's there's not much there that that, that triggers memory, other than churches. Uh, up in um, Way, uh, there was Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, and when I was there, it had no windows. It had been just uh, um, severely damaged, and yet I was able to go to the Saturday afternoon mass there um, in late April. Was it well attended? It was very much, yeah, very much so. As a matter of fact, uh, I was I was given the wrong time. And I was told that mass started at 4:30, and I got there at, at a couple minutes before 4:30, and there was about maybe a third of the church, a quarter of the church full. So I went in there, and, and there uh, they were saying uh, various vespers, and, and then um, some singing. And so mass actually didn't start till five o'clock. By the time it started, it was full. And then I, I did go to Notre Dame Cathedral down in uh, Saigon too, and the same situation. It was it was uh, to capacity to the point where they had televisions out in the vestibule. Um, Vietnam is 39% Buddhist and 11 11% uh, Catholic, and that's out of 84 million uh, Vietnamese. So it's a very size. There's still a very sizable population, and as as I understand it, with the more liberal attitude um, um, that's prevailing, uh, not not there yet, but um, there are more folks that are willing to to indicate on their their identification cards and so forth that they are members of uh, an organized religion uh, rather than the, the 40 percent who profess no religion you had um, you'd also uh, noted that you had um, met some uh, other US citizens um, while you were there who were still um, out on the trail and search for accounting of, of those who are classified MIA, um, and that you were able, indeed, to determine the circumstances uh, surrounding the, the death of someone very close to you. Uh, tell us about that experience. Yeah. Uh, best man at my wedding, Bob Hagen, uh, was flying in the backseat of one of these little 01A, looks like a little Piper Cub, uh, as an aerial observer, and he and the, the pilot were shot down on 6 May 1969. And I was rotating home on 9 May 1969, and I called up to his squadron to see to say goodbye to him, and then uh, found out that he had he was downed. And from that time until 19, well, it was probably 1997 or 98, uh, was uh, when the commission had reported that he was now killed in action. Well, uh, I never really found out the the actual story, and when I was in Da Nang at the Fiorama, uh, I noticed these four Americans were having breakfast and they had laptops with them. And, and typically I'd go over and talk to any American I could find, and I was traveling by myself. Um, but they, they seemed like they were busy, and I, so I decided not to, to bother them. And this was my last day, and I went back to the, my room and, and kind of packed. And uh, as I was going through the lobby, they came out the other end of the lobby, and I thought, well, I'm three hours early from my flight. I'll just go over and say something to them. And sure enough, about uh, one thing led to another, and and I said, well, what, you know, who do you guys work for? And they said, well, we work for JPAL, the uh, MIA recovery team out of Honolulu, and uh, we were just up north, uh, up along DMZ, and they they, they were uh, trying to find some of the other 1,700 Americans that are unaccounted for. And uh, I said, you know, this is this is going to be sound sound like one of these things where you, you meet somebody from a, a city and you say, oh, by the way, do you know John Smith? And they said, oh yeah, we know John Smith. I said, well. My best man, my wedding, is missing in action, John Robert Hagen, 0102658, and I'm wondering if you guys had any other information. And they, one of the guys popped open his laptop and, and, uh, and, 
a matter of seconds said, yeah, we do. And, here's, and he, he said, uh, he noticed that I had my BlackBerry on. He asked if it worked, and I told him, yeah. So he sent me an email with Bob's, uh, the information that, was, that, that he could, that was not classified. And then he said, well, do you want to know where Bob is in Arlington? I said, of course. And so he, he gave me that email as well. And as he was finishing up, he said, oh, by the way, he said, Bob Maves over there um, is the, uh, what was, was uh, on the recovery team. And you may want to talk to him and see if he remembers anything more. And uh, I went up and, and I, I introduced myself. And, and uh, I said, well, this is kind of a long shot, but uh, according to my email, back in 1994, you recovered remains of a couple guys up in, up north. And and, uh, and he said, you know what? He said, I, I, I actually remember that because that was one of the first first missions that, I, that he'd, he'd been on that actually produced some results. These, these guys have this unenviable job of trying to track down rumors and uh, just stories and hill people say, yeah, we saw these bones sticking out of a, right. a hill or something. And they go and they try to find it and locate it and everything. Well, uh, they, they did. They conducted a search and they found the wreckage of an aircraft and, and, and uh, remains of two individuals and, and they uh, sent it back to Hawaii and ultimately uh, dental tests uh, concluded that, that that was Bob and the pilot. So they then classified him in 1996 as, as killed in action. And I, I, I had had to ask. I said, now listen, I said, now I know you, you, this has been a long time, some 28 years in between the time or uh, between they, when they went down and you ultimately found it, or 26 years. And uh, do, you, do you have any idea uh, if they ever uh, were captured or became POWs? And he said, well, he said, uh, only four possibilities in this situation. One was they died on impact when their, their plane crashed. Or, uh, number two, they survived the impact, but in a shootout, firefight, they were, were killed, or number three, as sometimes happened, they were executed um, on a spot, or number four, they were they were taken off as POWs. And he said, well, I can't tell you which of the first three, he said, but with almost complete certainty, I could tell you it's one of the first three. And uh, as such, uh, I, I, you, know, I, you could have peace that he was not. Right. Uh, so if for no other reason that trip validated itself in my psyche is being certainly worthwhile. I, I now have a piece that, that at least that part of uh, a story, an un, unwritten chapter, uh, has been concluded. And obviously, um, I'm sure that was a very emotional uh, revelation. And I can imagine upon leaving the uh, country wheels up, uh, you must have had many, many more emotions you know, come over you about, um, about uh, the trip and and, and uh, things that were surprising, and, and uh, perhaps even uh, you know thinking about your you know your next uh, return. Oh yeah, um, well, even going back to with with, with Bob, uh, that the the real emotional impact of that was when we in 1964 we were in Navy ROTC and we were actually in Rome. We we had run out of money on a, the second day of three days in Rome, so we were didn't have anything to do. So we were leaning against the obelisk when you used to be able to do that right in the middle of Vatican, St. Peter's Square, and it was uh, about a week after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and, and the Sixth Fleet was awash with rumors about how there was going to be a full-scale war and all this sort of thing, and Bob and I were sitting there, and we, we talked about, you know, the what-ifs. Well, the one thing for sure is we knew that we weren't going to be uh, part of the Navy. <laughs> we were both going to take the Marine option and become Marines, and, and he said, well, you know, what if we ever got overrun? What would you do with the last round in your, in your pistol? Would you use it? What do you Catholics think about that? You know, so we had that discussion, and, and then so that, that that I remember that, and when I found out that Bob was not, uh, you know, 
um, a um, POW. It just was, was uh, very, very painful. But in, in some of the other memories, just places that I'd run patrols and, and some of the villages that we went to, or one of the other things that was a, a memory right down from our base camp was a Catholic orphanage. And our battalion uh, kind of adopted the orphanage, and we would take the kids out. Um, we, we, well, first of all, we ran regular medcats up there where, where we'd bring our corpsmen up there and, and docks and stuff like that and, and just tend the kids. And then um, we had regular donations of, of clothing, and we'd bring food and stuff up there. And But generally, we'd just pack them up in a six-by and take them over to the Sham Museum or take them to a different part of uh, the beach or take them someplace that just kind of get them away from, from where they were. And um, uh, I, I saw that building. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's how I was able to determine where 5th Com Battalion was because it was the next, next uh, uh, I don't want to say encampment, but it was the next structure up from where 5th where, where Com was. And it's still there, a mustard-colored uh, French uh, provincial type of building that's now a sanitarium or, or a uh, uh, hospital. And uh, I found this out from, from a doctor who, who stopped me on the, on the beach, asked if I was American. And uh, he wanted to tell me that he'd visited Savannah and he'd visited Olympia, and he was a doctor, and and uh, <laughs> just 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 wanted to want to say hello to an American. So. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. That, that was that was that was really surprising to see just the the warmth and cordiality. And that was in the South. That was in Da Nang, and I was more or less prepared for it. And then when you got to Saigon, it's such a frenetic place, uh, and they uh, they never really lost all the all the. Uh, American and the, the free enterprise spirit that maybe some of the rest of the country did. So they're they're still the the ultimate capitalists. The price for everything. Yes, sir. <laughs> and what you need. Well, John, we thank you uh, so much for sharing your thoughts and reflections surrounding your return to Vietnam. It truly is an amazing uh, story, and we appreciate you uh, taking the time to. Thank you, Sam. And if there's anybody who has any reticence about going back to that country, I'd, I'd say that don't don't have. And I'm sure happy, more than happy to, to, to chat with anybody who, who would like to. I've, I've talked to a number of veterans in, in the last uh, uh, week or two. Uh, we've had a couple of stories uh, about this here in, in local newspapers, and, and uh, I've had a number of, number of folks call and, and just to sit and talk for a little bit. So I'd be more than happy to if any, any of our ABI uh, members would like to like to do that. Thank you very much, okay, John. Sam. We thank our audience for listening. Okay. Uh, you can hear uh, the full uh, listening of API podcasts. They uh, are at abiworld.org. They're a list of guests of the previous show. And until then, this is Sam Giordano for ABI Podcast. Good day.